glad you're with us. We're in the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, so if you haven't turned there, turn with me to Gospel of Luke. We've turned a chapter over into chapter 2. When I switched on my iPhone this morning, Apple flashed the date, implicitly acknowledging that whatever you may believe about it, the birth of Jesus Christ was so important that it split history into two parts. Everything that happened on this planet falls into the category before Christ or after Christ. And most of our world, in some way, acknowledges Jesus. And for most people, the story of Jesus' birth is practically all they know of Christianity. Little baby born in a manger, silent night, somehow adding a drummer boy in the mix. Today, people even use Jesus' name to curse. Now, strange it would be if you were watching basketball and a basketball player missed a shot and yelled, Thomas Jefferson. Right? It seems strange to us at this point. Or a frustrated driver when they're cut off in the road, yells out, Michael Jordan. It, it wouldn't make sense because our world has, has equated Jesus as a cuss word. We, we can't get away from Jesus. He is the one who changed history. His, his life is the single most important life in the history of this planet. But there's still yet confusion about this man and who he is. Modern scholarship muddles the picture even more. If you spend just a few minutes in a university library, you may find Jesus as a political revolutionary or he as, as a magician who marries Mary Magdalene or perhaps a Galilean charismatic or a rabbi or just a good teacher or a peasant or a Pharisee or even a hippie that here comes to start a cult. And these are serious scholars writing this work with little embarrassment. So who is Jesus? Well, that's the question that Luke has set out to answer in his long letter to Theopolis. As you remember, Luke is writing, he says there in chapter 1, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So secular history doesn't give us very good information, but Luke goes right to the sources and interviews those that spent time around Jesus. And this morning, Luke gives us the details on how Jesus came to earth. And his amazing birth. And like I've done the last few weeks, and I hope to do this weeks going forward, I'm going to give you a main idea. So if you, you write down anything, or if you're smart like Amanda Rice, you take a picture of it on the screen. But here's the main idea, okay? Jesus' lowly birth shows us that God's kingdom will come in ways that surprise and subvert our expectations about what true greatness and power looks like. Let me read it again. Jesus' lowly birth shows us that God's kingdom will come in ways that surprise and subvert our expectations about what true greatness and power look like. It would be good for us to remind ourselves of the humility of Jesus. And so I know, I don't know if you guys realize this, Christmas was only six months ago. It feels like an eternity, right? The way 2020 is gone. But it's halfway through the year, and, but today we're going to come back to Christmas. We already sang a Christmas song. I tried, tried, I tried to get Zach to, three, to sing three songs for Christmas, but he wouldn't do it, which is probably wise. But we, we sang one already, right? And, and so today is Christmas in July, and we'll look at this Christmas passage here in Luke chapter 2 of Jesus becoming poor. 
uh, coming low so that we, as his people, will be spiritually rich through his poverty and suffering. Uh, and if you remind yourself again this morning, before his in- incarnation, the Son of God was rich beyond anything we could imagine. For our sake, he stooped to be born, not merely as a human, but as a powerless infant in a barn outside of an inn in an insignificant town. And Jesus became low in order that we might inherit a great spiritual treasure. So true greatness is not always visible as greatness. So we're going to look at the first 21 verses of chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, and it's broken up simply into three points here. First, the, the birth, verses 1 through 7. Second, the announcement, verses 8 through 14. And last, the visit with verses 15 through 21. So look with me here at Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1, the birth. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration of Quirinius, was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn." When it comes to taxation and, and the military, very few nations have ever wielded more power than the Romans. Uh, the Roman army ruled the Mediterranean world, and this enabled Roman officials to collect revenue from all parts of their empire. And to this day, we call paying taxes rendering unto Caesar. And in the days leading to Jesus' birth, a decree went out to the people to be registered to be taxed. The imperial power of Roman was consolidated by Octavian, who was famous for defeating Antony and Cleopatra, and it was the first Caesar to receive the, the august title of emperor. He was so powerful that he achieved godlike status in parts of the Roman Empire. In fact, an inscription on a statue in Turkey hails him savior of the whole world. This is what people said about him. This is what he thought of himself. But Caesar Augustus is more than a marker of history for the story of Jesus' birth. He is the instrument of God's will. It seems that the only reason historically why Jesus was born in Bethlehem was because of this powerful decree by Caesar. Although this man would never know it, he had unleashed a chain of events that would eventually turn the whole world upside down. Because millions would come and be registered, and Joseph with his bride-to-be, Mary, would come also. They would submit to the authorities and go on this long journey to register. And God was taking Caesar's pawns and moving them to checkmate so that the real Savior would stand alone as King of Kings. And as God's people, we should never fear the laws of men because over those laws are the laws of God, and no human being in all history has control over them. When men rule for their own end, we need to remind ourselves that God is still at work to fulfill his plan. We shouldn't fear those that God has placed over us. We should fear God. But I wondered this week, what would have happened if Joseph had thumbed his nose at Caesar's decree? Perhaps, through more difficult circumstances, God would have brought them to Bethlehem anyways for the birth of Jesus. He had to, to fulfill Scripture. God would have his way. But when we disobey, even the foolish 
laws of men, God sometimes has to bring suffering in our lives to bring us back in alignment to his will. But in God's providence, Joseph obeys the decree and Mary goes along. It said a male head of the household would have been enough to comply with the Roman census. So, so I wonder, why did Joseph bring his very pregnant wife along to Bethlehem in order the, to have this done? And, and I wonder if it was to spare her shame. If you remember a few weeks ago, as we looked at what it would have been like for Mary, I'm sure she was experiencing this in some ways. So we're unsure, though. Luke doesn't tell us. There's nothing in the text why Mary would travel with him. Perhaps she was aware of the prophecy in Micah 5, verse 2. Or perhaps, very simply, he didn't want to leave his fiancée there to the ridicule and shame of those that were hostile to her. Put Put yourself in her position. Nine months of answering awkward questions. And the lingering scent of scandal that followed them everywhere they went. You know, perhaps, very simply, Mary just needed to get out of town. Luke tells us that Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, came from the royal line of David, which fulfills prophecy. Bethlehem was the city of David, the hometown of the ancient king, and so it was the place that Joseph had to come register. It was, it was his home. David Goodling writes, For Augustus, the taking of a census was one of the ways he employed to get control over the various parts of his empire. But, and here's the irony of the thing, in the process, as he thought, of tightening his grip on the huge empire, he so organized things that Jesus, son of Mary, son of David, son of God, destined to sit on the throne of Israel and of the world, was born the city of David, his royal ancestor. Caesar was trying to show his great power, but actually it proves the great sovereign power of our God. God rules over all things for his glory. No one can take that from him. Not Caesars, not governors, not presidents. God is working out his will, and we will see that he gets the glory in the end, even in spite of what leaders do. And we need to remind ourselves, God is sovereign. Still in 2020, he's still sovereign. And so now Luke tells us the true story of the nativity, and it it paints the picture of a contrast between worldly power of of Caesar and and the weakness of the baby Jesus. And and Luke here describes the birth in very simple, unadorned terms. He says in verse 7, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The custom at this time was pretty normal to, to take strips of cloth and bind them around a child to keep their limbs straight. The same body that was wrapped in swaddling clothes would 33 years later be wrapped in a burial shroud. Some scholars think that the biblical term for in here refers to a private dwelling possibly owned by Joseph's relatives. We're not sure. Most likely, it it seems to be a a guest house where groups of travelers would sleep in a common room. And it seems, we're not sure, we're not given the details that this particular night, the room was crowded, or perhaps there was just a few more people there that Joseph and Mary were comfortable with since she was about to give birth. You know, if Mary did go with Joseph to escape the judging looks of family, it makes sense then to skip out of the room and head to where the animals stay. So I say that because we probably need to chill out on the innkeeper. I think he's getting a bad rap in this deal. <laughs> We're not sure. You know, it's a sentimental thing or a song that's sung, but it doesn't necessarily mean it was all his fault. 
So Jesus is born, and, and he's laid then in a makeshift crib, a feeding trough. Yeah, it's been glamorized over the years to be called a manger. It is a manger because singing away in the feeding trough just doesn't have the same ring to it, right? That was a good one. The point is, there's no dignity in, in a feeding trough. That's the point of what he's trying to say here. The Savior who dies on a shameful cross sleeps his first night in the, the feeding trough of an animal. You can only imagine how uncomfortable it would have been to sleep there, to be there. But can you imagine how uncomfortable it would have been for Mary to give birth there? You know, we said this a few weeks ago when, when Mary responds to the angel that she's just going to submit her life. This was part of it. This is what it meant for Mary to serve the Lord. They were traveling almost 100 miles, either on foot or on a donkey, during the late stages of pregnancy. It meant having anxiety of labor pains in a foreign city. It meant finding used, old clothes nearby to tear up so that her baby could be wrapped up for the night. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and straw. This was the picture. And then the trembling and callous hands of a young carpenter, clumsy with fear and trepidation, grasping the God's Sun slippery with blood, his arms waving helplessly as he falls through space, his face grimacing as he grasps for his first breath on earth, and most definitely his cry piercing the night. Andrew Peterson sings of this in his Christmas album. I encourage you to, I was listening to Christmas music all week, so to listen to this because he paints the picture so beautifully. Mary's faithfulness to the Lord. No midwives were around. Just two teenagers and a baby. And it's astonishing to think of that night, the night of our Lord coming to earth where the animals slept in obscurity and indignity and pain and rejection. You know, it's one of the greatest mysteries of the universe that when God the Son became a man, he spent his first night in a barn sleeping in a feeding trough. Do you see the indignity of it all? This is God. God the Son, the firstborn of all creation, Colossians says. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth. He was the King of kings and Lord of lords, the supreme ruler over all coming as a baby, born in a barn. And what kind of welcome does, did he deserve? If you know this, but leaders in our world, the president travels internationally. It, it could cost up to $2 million securing for him to travel on one trip of national security, hundreds of national security members, reserving entire floors of hotels, having, having his car shipped there so he's protected and I thought, that's a lot of money, but then I read that the Queen of England, the last time she traveled to the U.S. in 2007, one journalist spent all the time to, to detail this out, 4,000 pounds of luggage 
So men, if your wife packs two for a trip, just chill. 4,000 pounds of luggage. Two pairs of outfits for every occasion, bringing her own hairdresser, two valets, a host of attendants, and they estimated that cost of the trip itself was nearly $20 million. And here's the Son of God, owner of everything, coming low to a barn, born to teenage peasants. Jesus deserved to have every person from every nation there worshiping him. Instead, he comes in humility to a barn in seclusion. And it was no mistake, God did this on purpose. And he has a plan, though, even in this passage, to get the word out. So that leads to the second shocking point here, number two, the announcement. Look at verse 8. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger." find it interesting that when God chooses to announce the birth of the Messiah to the world, he doesn't inform the rich and the powerful. He goes to shepherds. Shepherds in that society were, were despised, distrusted, and deprived of their civil rights. It's, it's as if God were trying to make it crystal clear to what kind of people the good news of Jesus comes. It doesn't come to the rich and powerful, to those who have no sense of their need. It comes to the low. He doesn't reveal his ways to the Caesars of the world. J.C. Ryle said, the things of God's kingdom are often hid from the great and noble and revealed to the poor. So if God doesn't despise the poor, we probably shouldn't either. You know, God has always had a special attraction to shepherds. When God appeared in a burning bush to call the leader of his people in Exodus, it was, it was an exile man working as a shepherd. When Israel became a, a floundering nation, there was a shepherd boy who would be anointed king. Even in the age of prophets, we find Amos, not a man of great stature, but a shepherd. And now in the age of the church, what do we call leaders of church families but shepherds? Many prominent people in biblical history were called by God from the realm of insignificance. And here we read of shepherds out in the field working, keeping a watch over their flock. Just another night for them, and then they are shocked to what they see and hear. They're afraid. Why were they afraid? Have you ever thought about that? It was the light the light of the glory of God. Isn't it odd that in the dark, the shepherds aren't scared one bit? But when the light comes, they freak out. I don't know about you, but when I was little, I was scared of the dark. I grew up in Michigan, and we have a basement. I hated going down to the basement, unless the light was on. And the light was on, I was, I was better. But here they are in the dark, and they're fine, 
And when the lights come on, they flip out. And the reason they're fearful was the kind of light that was shown. It was no ordinary light. It was the light of the glory of God. And I think there's something there for us to learn. See, whenever God gets close to you, he shows up and you realize you're not God and he's there, you get scared. The light of the glory of God reminds us that we are just creatures, that we're not God. If you remember Adam and Eve back in Genesis in the garden a long time ago, they would walk with God, right? They walked with him. They were built for the glory of God. They weren't fearful. But on that fateful day, when they wanted to be like him, eating the fruit, what did they do afterwards? They hid because God came. Every other day, they would be fine. But on that day, and from that day forward, the glory of God came and they were afraid. Do you know what the glory of God is? Let me give you an example. The oceans are literally glorious. Have you ever stood at the beach and looked out the ocean? You stand on that, on that uh, sand and, and you cannot see the other side. You know that Tokyo is 5,000 miles away, but you can't see it because that ocean is glorious. It's huge, it's expansive. And you take it all in. And you look at yourself compared to the hugeness of that ocean, and you feel so, so small. And the glory of God is, is his weight. It's his substance. It's his gravity. It's, his, it's the bigness. It's his weightiness. And God doesn't have a body, so it's not literal weight. So it means his glory is the seriousness to which he must be taken. And so on that day with Adam and Eve, when they took the fruit, they tried to replace God with themselves, and they found out really quick that they weren't up to the task. They wanted to be their own master. They wanted to call the shots in their life. They wanted to become their own gods that day, and it ruined them, and it ruined us. And they couldn't handle the glory of God, and they hid themselves. So how does that apply to us? Let me try to give you another illustration. If you've ever been in a job that you were highly unqualified for, you know how frightening it is, how scary it is. Last week I was watching a British comedy about an IT department, and this woman is hired to run it, and she barely knows how to turn on a computer. And she's embarrassingly trying to cover that up, trying to hide that. She's running around scared all the time to be found out. And so if you take a job that you know that you're unqualified for, you're defensive and you're anxious all the time. You're, you're scared of criticism and, and you feel like you're constantly looking over your shoulder. Just in case someone comes and sees that you don't know this, that you don't have the ability. And then when someone does come and they do have the skills, and when they get close to you, you get scared. Because the closer they get, the more of your imposterness is revealed. And people will, will see that you're unqualified for the job. And so you're afraid, you're fearful, you're scared. And the Bible tells us that we've retained, just like Adam and Eve, this 
right over our lives. We want to be bosses over our lives. We want to be in control. We want to decide what is right and wrong. We don't want to submit to anyone. And that's why we're afraid of failure and rejection. It's even why we're afraid of the future. Because we know how flawed we truly are and scared of what might happen. And the main reason for all of this is because we don't have the power of God. We don't have the glory of God, the weightiness of God, the seriousness of God. And so when God shows us our creatureness and he shows up, our, our incompetence is displayed. And when we're in the light of God's glory, it shows us we're not in control, that we don't have it all figured out, and it bothers us and it scares us tremendously. See, the shepherds are in the field, comfortable in the dark, but when the light of the glory of God shows, they're afraid. It exposes them. It swings open the door of their lives, and it reveals their inability, that they are just mere creatures in comparison to God's glory. It exposes them, and, and, and they, they flip out. They can't bear it at this point. You know, there, there could be things right now in your life, friend, situations or relationships that are showing you that you're really not capable of running your own life by yourself. There are things that God is bringing to your life to show you that you're really not in control. And that light is there to shine on your creatureness, and we tend to hate it. We, we want to run away from it, but we desperately need the exposure. You know, that's why we were saying earlier, even John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." And the first thing grace does is make you scared. The first thing at Christmas God's revelation did was made them scared. God wanted to bring the good news of the incarnation to the shepherds, and what's the first thing that happened? He made them frightened. He made them scared, and he frightened them to show them their greatest need. And the only way that we would understand the gospel is to understand our need for the gospel. I don't know about you, but when I have conversations with people about the gospel, intellectually, a lot of people can understand this. They can walk through the steps. They can give it back to me. But they don't think it applies to them. They haven't understood their need of the gospel. They haven't been exposed. They have to truly see themselves of who they are. And unless you see your creatureness, unless you see your, your inadequacy, your insufficiency, unless you see that you're a sinner unless you see that it's a lie that you've been living under for years, that you can do this, that you can live and control your life, that you're really in charge, that you really can pull it all together, unless you, unless you see that you can't, you will never have your fears relieved. of what John Newton says. You will never really understand the glory of the incarnation of Jesus being born in this world until you see your need of him. Christmas means nothing unless you see your need of Jesus. And so the gospel here, the good news, shocks us out of self-sufficiency. 
This is what the angel says. He says, fear not. Look at verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. That's the gospel. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What glorious news this is. The gospel is for all people. This is the best news in the world. And so as the Messiah points to his office in terms of the promised anointed one, and, and Lord here indicates his sovereign authority, and Savior here means it points to his role as deliverer. And then in verse 13, and suddenly there was the angel of a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the bursts of light that flooded the fields in Bethlehem announced the advent of a Savior who was able to do the task. And the angels come surrounded by the glory of God. And the glory was shining. And it didn't belong to the angels. No, it's to God alone. It was his glory. Friends, every human is longing for a Savior of some type. And we long for someone or something that will solve our problems or ease our pain or, or give that elusive goal to us of happiness. And we search for it in work, in our careers, in our families, in our recreation, in our sports teams. With every new dream, a new project, a new endeavor, we're, we're filled with hope that possibly things will get better. And if you're here and if you're listening this morning, you're not a Christian, I have great news for you. There is a better life than the one you've been living. There is a life that while still experiencing trials and disappointments, it has more and better friends and purpose and joy and family and peace that you could ever imagine. And this joy and peace that Christ gives is not dependent on your outward circumstances. All people want this. People want this peace. They want this joy. They want this happiness. That's why the book, Your Best Life Now, sells out. They're, they're striving after this. But simply, this, this good life comes only through being forgiven of your sins against God and being reconciled in your relationship to the Creator. It comes by realizing your creatureness, your, your inadequacy, your insufficiency, and understanding that all you need is found in Jesus Christ alone. So I would encourage you, friend, to come and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone this morning. Well, we've seen his birth and the announcement last is the visit. Look at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. See, the, the shepherds don't go to see the baby in order to believe. They go because they believe. And if the angel had not appeared to them while they were out in the fields, the shepherds would have never known. And this shows us how much we need the preaching of the gospel. So don't make light of the preaching of the gospel. To understand what God has done, we need to have someone explain it to us. By itself, what God had done could not have saved the shepherds or anyone else. Jesus was born already, but they would have no idea unless a preacher was there to explain it. They needed to know what it meant by faith, which could only happen by divine revelation. 
And this is how God saves, not simply by sending Jesus to be our Savior, but also by preaching the gospel that we can believe in his saving work. This is why I pray for other churches in our area on Sunday mornings. I'm praying that God would save others, even though they may never step foot in our church. That's why I pray for the preaching of Ryan Wood and Stephen Bruckner and Ben Sandsburg, who pastor faithfully in our area. And I pray for those brothers weekly because it's only through the declaration of the gospel that people have the knowledge to be saved. God doesn't just do things, he also says things. And we need to know what he says so that we can believe in what he's done. And to help the shepherds believe, God gives them a sign of his promise and they go and find the baby. It says in verse 16, they went with haste. I find that strange. They left their job, they left the flock in haste to go find him. So there's risk there for them, right? They could come back and have no job later if their flock dispersed. So they left in haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the scene that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard, heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And what we read here is the shepherds tell everyone, glorifying God, praising him. Saved people share the gospel. That's what we do. Changed people want to tell others how to be changed. People who, who lived around the shepherds, I'm sure, probably heard this story over and over and over again, right? They talked about it. And here what we see is the shepherds are imitating the angels by glorifying God in the highest and praising him. And the gospel does this to us. The good news of what God has done for us does this to people. It, it brings faith in Jesus Christ and it turns us into witnesses to worship and praise of him, to tell others. And then Luke says here in verse 19 that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. It's sometimes hard to see what God is doing when we're right in the middle of the events happening. And what we hear is Mary is treasuring, and she's tucking away, she's meditating on all that had happened in the last nine months. And when it says she's, she's treasuring and, and pondering, she's, she's thinking about it. She's using her mind, her intellect, to think through what God is doing. It's very likely that Luke's source for what's transpired here is Mary herself. And Dr. Luke visited her years after all of it and heard the details right from Mary. And moms have a knack to remember all the details of what transpired. People ask me what my kid's birth weight and length, I have no idea. My wife can tell you all those details pondering that, that significance of what happened, but not only just the birth of Jesus, I'm sure she was pondering all these things. Wow. Amazing for her to think through of this, of this one that she has carried inside of her for nine months and who he's going to be. Pondering of who he was as she nursed this child, as she nurtured him in his youth, watching as things unfold in his life and his career as an adult. Mary pondered these things. Let me tie things up here this morning. 
It still amazes me that this whole thing, this whole experience rested on the shoulders of two teenagers. I mean, think about that. How many times they, they second-guessed themselves throughout the whole process. Nine months of these awkward explanations. Nine months of, of the uncertainty. And it seems that God had arranged the most humiliating circumstances possible for his entrance into the world. And yet they were faithful to God and what he called them to do. He in trust two teenagers with the greatest gift the world has ever seen. You know, when you think deeply about the entrance of Jesus to our world, it's an outrageous event that it doesn't have the fanfare that it deserves. But if you pause and honestly answer, what kind of welcome would you have given him? What kind of welcome are you giving him right now into your life? Is there room for Jesus in your heart, in your life? Have you come to Jesus in faith? Is there room for Jesus in your life in the way in which you live and you prioritize your life? Does Jesus enter into your mind during the day or just in the morning when you read your Bible? Does he enter into your decision-making? your financial decisions, your marriage, your parenting, your neighboring? Does Jesus enter into your business decisions? Do you give space for Jesus in your feelings and your affections and your thoughts and your views of life and your dreams and your decisions and your actions and your daily conduct? What is the gospel doing in your life right now? How is it growing you and changing you? Are we more willing to share our faith in Jesus than our opinion on the coronavirus? Are we more excited to talk about what Christ has done in our life or our outrage at the current cultural struggle? I sometimes wish the church was more excited about the incarnation of Jesus as they were about their favorite politician. What has dominated your thoughts this week? Was it Jesus? Or did we forget about him? You know, Jesus is out up in heaven wringing his hands in disappointment of you, friends. He's actually closer to you this morning than he was with sinners and sufferers when he was on earth. It's true. Through his spirit, Christ's own heart envelops his people with an embrace that is near and tighter than a physical embrace could ever give. And so if my questions here this morning prick your heart and conviction and you're struggling with, with certain things in your life or with sin, you need to hear that Jesus doesn't get flustered or frustrated when you come to him for forgiveness. Jesus isn't annoyed with you.
think we all in some way walk around with this low-grade belief that Jesus is just tired of us, and that's not true. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to supply us with limitless supply of mercy and grace. And so the answer, friends, this morning isn't to hold on to your guilt and shame for a misplaced life and love. It's to go to Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus lives for right now in heaven, to intercede for us. Hebrews 7 says, Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus doesn't forgive us through the work of his life on the cross and then hope that we'll just make it on our own. Now, Jesus is praying for you right now, friend. Louis Burkhoff said, it is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our prayer life. And if we're honest, our prayer life stinks most of the time. But what if you heard Jesus praying aloud in the next room for you? How does that impact you? Jesus lives to make intercession for you, Christian. And so don't run from him. Run to him. And may this thought rest on you freshly this week that we would all run to Jesus and be satisfied in him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. If we're honest this morning, we have had moments in our life, maybe even today or this last week, where we feel like you might have left us. I've even talked to some of your children, God, that have struggled with this thought this week. That they finally did enough to push you away. But we need to be reminded that once we are yours, God, nothing can take us out of your hands. And when we feel that fresh conviction of sin, we need to be quick to confess and to run to you for forgiveness. And I pray that as we journey through the Gospel of Luke that we'll learn more of Jesus and that we're reminded of your immeasurable grace that you've given us. Remind us that we're not forsaken. We're not ignored. That you love us and you desire to have us walk in fellowship with you. So, God, I pray that we would be faithful in our time spent with you. That we would make it a priority to read your word, to learn of you, and to spend time praying.
And we thank you for the, for the re- reminder this morning that you are always interceding for us. And you long to show love and care for us. Father, we thank you. We love you. And I pray that we would display this, this changeness in our life of what Christ has done as we leave this place this week in our conversations, in our attitudes, in our relationships. And may you be glorified in all of it. For we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.